Welcome to episode 14 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Beth Revis, the New York Times bestselling author of Across the Universe Trilogy and the forthcoming YA novel, A World Without You. Yay! So as you guys could probably tell, it just doesn't sound like a normal podcast. That's because I'm no longer in my studio, <laughs> which is really my office. Um, and we're in a coffee shop in Charlotte. Um, Beth is a North Carolina author, like myself, so we just decided to meet up and uh, do a podcast for you guys. So I'm super excited. Yes, me too. Um, so let's, and let me introduce you. I'm sure a lot of our readers know who you are, since you are a New York Times <laughs> bestselling author. Which isn't as big a deal as many people think. <laughs> <laughs> we did talk about this earlier in one of our podcast episodes and how strange it is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so let's just, uh, you know, if you want to introduce who you are, where you come from, when you started writing, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so I started writing uh, when I was a sophomore in college. I wrote my first novel then. I was trying to write a short story, and it just kept going and going and going, and it became a novel. Um, and I was very naive at the time, because I, I sort of had this idea, like, like kind of field of dreams. If I write it, they will come, and they would be publication, and J.K. Rowling to have tea with me, and it would be awesome and amazing. Um, and instead, no, that did not happen. My first novel was essentially fan fiction, but not, like, cool fan fiction, because it was fan fiction of Narnia. But that's not all cool. fan fiction is cool. I don't care. I grew up in, it's, in it's fandom, like the least so cool. Like, like there's fandoms that people are passionate about, and then there's Narnia. <laughs> people are like, oh yeah, there's a lamppost and some snow. <laughs> so the first one wasn't that great, um, but I wrote basically a book a year, and every time I thought this would be the book, this is the one that's going to change, this is the one that's going to get published, and it wasn't. And I did that for ten years. I have a book a year for ten years. And none of them were published, and they were all pretty terrible, but I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> I thought that they were all amazing. Every time I finished a book, I thought it was the one. Um, but then I wrote one more book, and I, that was the point when I really was about to give up. Like, there was a very distinct moment, because the tenth book I wrote, it's the only one I regret, because it was the book that I wrote kind of for the market. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of looked at I was like, what I'm doing isn't working, so I need to figure out what the market wants. And so, I mean, it was very tropey, and it was very pandering and I didn't intend to write it that way but I kind of did because I set out to write the novel that would sell right. and it didn't sell and so like this one last ditch effort didn't work so I was about to give up and then I had an idea for one more thing and I was like well everything else I've done has sucked so I'm just going to do the thing I want to do and the thing I wanted to do was what became Across the Universe and changed everything so alright yeah. <laughs> that's I mean ten, 10 years is a long time actually because I, you know, and I, I mentioned this before, I never really seriously considered publication until I left publishing, which mm. is probably the backwards way yeah. of doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I think most people are not like that. <laughs> um, I mean, so much of my time was spent, you know, editing other people's books and, right. you know, acquiring other people's books. And I loved doing that, but, you know, since publishing mostly exists in New York City and... I mean, Algonquin's here in North Carolina, but not close to where I live, yeah. so I, you know, and I didn't take publication seriously. So I guess a couple of questions I wanted to ask you was, when you started taking publication seriously, and the sort of the steps you took to research it, because yeah. um, I know a lot of people ask, you know, we have a lot of oh, listeners yeah. who are aspiring writers, and they're always asking, well, how do you get published? So what 
I, the question I want to ask is what, when you want, when you started taking it seriously and what helped you along the way? Yeah. I think it was, um, it's pretty interesting that I sort of grew up with it as the internet was growing up. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and that makes me feel super old, but 10 years is really not that long of a time in terms of like human life, but right. it's a long time in terms of the internet and, and even publishing. So when I started writing, and pursuing publication and thinking about it in a professional way. Um, Harry Potter had just hit big. Twilight wasn't out yet. Mm -hmm. The internet existed, but, like, it was it existed sort of... It wasn't as bad as it was, you know, 25 years ago, but it still was kind of like... Like, I had it at college, but I didn't have the internet at home because my parents were still like, oh, we won't get that. Here's our 56K modem. <laughs> so, like, so it was still kind of growing. Like, the internet was going through some growing pains. Um, but the first research I did really was like, there's really thick, how do you get published by Writer's Digest? Yes. Um, the Writer's Market, those books. Yes. I still have some copies of like the 2000 Writer's Digest. Like it's bad. <laughs> um, but, I, but I had all those. And so I, I started that way. And I'm really glad I didn't get published that way because that way led me to a few things that made me have narrow misses with scams. Because uh. there were some agencies in there that I queried because they said they would take everything and then they would send me back a reply to the query letter saying, oh, well, why don't you pay this money for this service and maybe mm -hmm. we'll think about it. And, I mean, I was fortunately very broke and couldn't afford anything anyway. <laughs> but, like, that, that wasn't as good. But as I grew older and as the Internet got bigger, um, I had QueryTracker.net, which was a mm -hmm. huge resource. Creditors and Editors, which was a huge resource. And I sort of saw those websites develop and grow, and I was a very early adopter to those. Mm -hmm. And those two are the ones that I automatically recommend to everyone. QueryTracker.net and Predators and Editors, if you're even thinking about it, go there. But we're at the point now where if you want to get published, there's this awesome thing called Google, and yeah. you can just ask it anything, and it will tell you the answer. Like, there's really no secret trick. If you just say how to get published on Google, there will be 15 pages that to show you how to write a query letter and what the stages are and all that. So, so now I think it's a lot easier to find the information and avoid the bad things. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the, the business aspect of getting published, um, but you'd also mentioned that you've written... What, 10 books, you said? 10. Ten. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like a lot. <laughs> um, do you regret writing any of those 10? Aside um, from the one that you said yeah. was pandering. The, the, the last one, the last of the 10, the last one that wasn't published, I really do regret that one because it had nothing of my heart in it. It mm -hmm. was really was just me trying to figure out a formula and fill in the blanks, mm -hmm. which is a horrible way to write. Like, I did not enjoy writing it. I didn't really enjoy it afterwards. The only thing I had my eye on when I was writing that book was, was this, you know, holy grail of publication, which is a silly goal if that's the only thing you're in it for. Right. So that one I do regret. The other ones, I don't, I don't really regret them. They are not publishable, and they never will be more than likely. There's one that I still sort of like the idea, and I may go back to one day. Out, out of the all ten, there's one that I may return to. But, I mean... Those words were not wasted words because some of those were practice novels, especially mm -hmm. the first ones that were really thinly veiled fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those were those were practice novels. Like they they were learning how to write, learning how to find a voice, mm -hmm. and then after that, some of them were learning in different ways. There were there's the one that I still like. The reason why it's not going to be published is because it's really not marketable. It is a very strange novel, and I love it, but it's like Jabberwocky. 
you don't know where to put it on a bookshelf. Like it's it's just a very strange thing. It's it's sort of in between middle grade and young adult, maybe a little bit YA, and it's sort of fantasy, but yeah. it's sort of not. And there's no one on the shelf for it. And maybe one day I will revise it and fit it into something that'll fit the market. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day I might self-publish it in a way that it doesn't really need to have be on a bookshelf. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll see. But but no, I don't regret any of those. I only regret the one that I wrote without heart. Right. You call those practice novels mm-hmm. and, and learning how to, to write, essentially. Because we, I mean, at least I do. I have plenty of what I call trunk novels yeah. that just I wrote because <laughs> I like to write. And mm-hmm. then that was the one that, or these, each one taught me something different about how to write, you know, how to craft characters or in dialogue and voice and all that sort of stuff. Um, so... Let's talk about revision, because I know that was the subject that um, is kind of what's on your mind at the moment, because you're revising. Um, So where did you learn to revise? I guess that's a good question to ask. That's an excellent question to ask, because (laughs) nobody ever thinks about learning revision. Learning revision, yeah. Wow. Um, I I learned through a lot of practice and trial and error, Mm -hmm. and, and sort of figuring it out. But I also learned the hard way. And that's one reason why I had to get through 10 novels, because I did not know how to revise. <laughs> and the reason is because I would finish a novel and I would think it was perfect. Mm. And like I, I, it's very difficult to see your own flaws in any way, shape, right. or form. And it, the first few novels I wrote, I didn't have fatigue partners. I mm-hmm. submitted, like, like I, I wrote the end, and then the next day I was like, your agent. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you consider this? Because I just I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And I was just very ignorant on that. But I also did not see those flaws. And I distinctly remember the, the one of uh, the ten that I wanted maybe one day go back to. I got an R&R of revise and resubmit from an editor who I met at a conference. And she had given me an edit letter, and I went through it and was like, okay, maybe this, maybe this, and I made, like, the edit letter was about five pages long, and I made, like, a weekend's worth of corrections on it, like, <laughs> I really was, I treated that much more casually than I should have, because I, I didn't really think that, I just didn't see what she was saying, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how to incorporate these changes, mm-hmm. so, for example, one of her suggestions was to age the character up, so I, I, found where I had said that she was 16 and I said and she's 17 years old and like right just changed the, the number like I didn't change her character right so it took a lot of that trial and error for me to realize that and I think getting critique partners was a huge thing mm-hmm. because I would send it to one critique partner and they would still have corrections and then I would send it to another critique partner and they'd be like no you, you've done nothing <laughs> you changed a comma and a paragraph calm down <laughs> Yeah, I, I mentioned uh, in an earlier podcast, too, that when I was an editor and I'd asked for a revise and resubmit, and, some you know, sometimes it'd come in, and I'd say it's really just a new coat of paint rather than actually, yeah. like, renovating the house, which is what I, I needed so them to do. I was so much more determined to get it in quickly before she forgot about it right. than I was to do a good job, and, like, that's the total backwards way to do that. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, I learned to revise by editing, essentially. Um, you know, and it's it because it isn't your own work, as you said. You were yeah. too close to your own writing to see its flaws or where it needed to to be worked on. So for me, looking at other people's stuff yeah. and being sort of outside of of the writing process itself 
I was able to, when I was editing and then when I started writing and, and, and revising my own stuff, that's where I learned. But I know exactly yeah. what you mean by being, no. you're just too yeah. close to your own work or mm-hmm. you're, you're either too emotionally attached or you just, you're inside the house so you mm-hmm. can't see what it looks like from the outside. Oh, I remember having a very enlightening moment once when I was critiquing someone else's work and I realized she kept repeating the same sort of style. It wasn't the same words. It wasn't like a repetition of a word or anything, but it was the same sort of sentence structure. Right, right. And I just started highlighting it all. I'm like, how can you not see this? And then later, I looked at my own work, and I was like, <laughs> holy shit, I do the same thing. And just seeing someone else do it taught me right. exactly what I, was, what I was doing wrong. And that's why I always tell people, like, don't spend a lot of money paying for beta reads. Right. Get a critique partner, because you will learn just as much from what you correct other people in right. than what you get back to feedback. Well, let's talk a little bit about critique mm-hmm. partners. So where did you find yours? I found mine mostly on the internet to start with. Um, some of my best critique partners and among my best friends, we just started talking online. I had a blog. I had Twitter when it came about. And we just started a conversation and started talking. And when I would say on my blog, like, oh, I'm working on revising my novel, one of my readers said, hey, I'm also revising a novel. You want to stop? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of those early relationships started from online. And since then, I've had more opportunities to meet in real life. Like, like you know. <laughs> but but it, it first started just online. And everyone's like, how do you find critique partners? And really, the answer is to just join the community and be, right. to show up and be a part of that community. And then you'll find the people who are like you. Right. So you learned from critiquing other people and getting feedback on the critiques um, from your readers mm-hmm. themselves. So before we kind of go into the nitty-gritty of how to revise, because a lot of people want to know that, and I always say it's hard to do, to give a program for that kind of thing because each book is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, let's t- sort of talk about revising with feedback from your critique partners and then revising with feedback from your editor and mm-hmm. what the difference is, if, yeah. they, if there are any differences, and, and you know how you sort of reconcile that. Right. So when you work with an editor, you typically have three rounds of edits. And you have your your edit letter, which is going to be, you know, between 5 and 25 pages, depending. (laughs) Um, And it's one of those rare cases where size doesn't always matter. And a short letter may be a lot of work, and a long letter may not be a lot of work. I actually say that the shorter the letter is, the more work it probably is, because it's big picture stuff. Oh, yeah. I've gotten to the point now where I fear a short letter. Yeah. (laughs) Because a short letter will say something like, rewrite the entire book. But a long letter will say something like, okay, on page 32, in right. line 5, and like you can you can handle that. Um, but, so the first one's the edit letter, and the edit letter is the big picture stuff. It's it's where I tend to rewrite my whole novel. <laughs> yep, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> it, it's, it's those things where you're trying to get the story down, really. Um, and then after that, you have line edits, which is a prose level, and it's sort of... Um, making sure that your idea is there on every page and that you haven't wandered off into the distance and making sure that your language is there and the consistency and all that. And then finally you have copy edits. And what I discovered when I... And copy edits is is grammar um, and sort of those... And style and, yeah. The little nitty-gritty things. Um, But what I discovered was that most critique partners do a line edit Mm. but not an edit letter. And what most people need is an edit letter. Right. So most critique partners, before I was published, 
we, and I did the same thing. It's not like they were right. you know, doing the bad thing to me. Like, I was doing it as well. But most critiques that I did before I was published would be inline comments. You know, you open up your Word document, you add a comment, and it would be those things sort of paragraph by paragraph, line by line. I was correcting grammar, things like that. Right. But what I needed to do and what I wish more people realized would make a better critique is more of an edit letter style. Right. Where you say things in, in more of a paragraph form, looking at the book as an overall picture. And that was something that sort of revolutionized the way I looked at critiques. And now I give critiques, I do more of an edit letter than this line-by-line -line edit. Awesome. So then let's talk about how to revise. Yeah. Um, I know this will be different from person to person depending on how they initially draft because as you and I had spoken before, we're pantsers. Yes. So we just kind of put words on the page and then fix it later. Yes. <laughs> so revision tends to be pretty big for pantsers. Yeah. Um, you know, because a lot of us have no idea what we're doing before we start, or at least I don't. Um, <laughs> no, I, I never do. I have like a very vague idea of the end, sort of. I, that's it. I'm a little bit of a hybrid in that. I, I don't know any of the specifics of my book at all, but I kind of know sort of very broad turning points. Like this, I don't even get the turning points usually. <laughs> usually, <laughs> I'll think of them as I'm going. But, right, right. But like, like I'll see. El Doctorow has a great quote that says something like. Um, Riding is like driving in a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights right, are, but right. you, you can make the whole journey that way. Like, I, I can make it to the next turning point. Right. But I don't know the turning point after that. Right, right. I, I only kind of know the first half of my book, though. Yeah. So, like, between, like, like the first half up to the middle, I kind of have ideas God, of... the middle. The, like, between the middle and then the words, the end, I'm like, I don't know. This yeah. is horrible, and this is awful, and it, <laughs> I, I'm always... Uh, uh, for me, it's always like middle to the end because it's like beginning to the middle, fine. Mm -hmm. Middle to the end, forget it. I, I got the first first 50 and last 50, everything in between. Like, I don't know what the hell happens. Right, right. Okay, so then let's talk about revision and, and how to do it as, as pantsers. Uh -huh. um, so what do, what do you do when, when you get an edit letter from your editor, say, and, the, and you look at these are the things you have to revise. So how do you, how do you approach your manuscript after Well, first that? I approach a vodka bottle. <laughs> Mine's whiskey, but oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Booze yeah. of choice, you guys. Um, also chocolate. When I was yes. pregnant, I had to do all my edits while pregnant or oh, no the first two months after the baby. So right. I had no alcohol. So I like basically bought out Lint Chocolate Factory. <laughs> I just went in with like buckets and like filled them up. <laughs> so that went well. Um, so what I usually do after I sort of process everything, and it takes me some time because I... Whenever I get an edit letter, I always have at least one knee-jerk, angry reaction of just like, no. And like, you know the meme where the guy has like the big fry yes, face? the no like, face, yeah. No. Yeah. Like, there's one thing. And sometimes it's teeny tiny and it's just like a throwaway comment that my editor added. Like, oh, maybe you should change your hair color to blonde. And I'm like, no. And it'll be something like violent. So I have to get over my knee-jerk reaction of no to, to whatever the weird thing is. And it's always something. And... 75% of the time, I will end up being on the side of, okay, I'll change that one thing that I didn't want to change. But I, I have to get over that. And then I sort of highlight. I take it. I always print the letter out, and I highlight it. And then I make a list of what the person, what the editor is really saying they want to make change. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, and it's not always all the time, but sometimes an editor will say, well, why don't you change X to Y? And 
that is wrong. Right. But what's not wrong is that X isn't working. Right. So I will try to figure out what is not working and look past what the suggestions are to what the problem is. Right. And I'll make a list of all of the problems that aren't shining through. So it, if she thinks that the pacing is off and I should solve that by cutting a character, mm -hmm. I might not want to cut the character, but I do need to fix the pacing. Right. So I, I start that way. I, I sort of condense the edit letter into bullet points. And I also take out all the compliments. Which <laughs> I, know, I know like a lot of people need the compliments and they're really nice and they make me not want to shoot myself in the face after I get the edit letter. But I have to delete them all. Like, I, I cannot look at the compliments because then I get hung up on them and I'll be like, oh, I can't change something because she said she Because she liked it. it. Right, so right. So I just, I black those all out. I completely ignore the compliments. So then you have this list of the problem areas that you need to work on. How do you prioritize what you work on first? I always work chronologically. Chronologically? And I know okay. some people don't, but, right. but I start on page one and mm -hmm. I go down and I always do everything I do chronologically. I cannot write the second word without writing the first word first. So, you know, say, say she says the pacing is, or lags, you know, in the middle or whatever, so you still kind of go from beginning to the end and beginning you sort of fix things as they yeah. go along? And it's not until you ask this question that it even occurred to me that somebody wouldn't do that. <laughs> I'm sitting here like, well, obviously I'd go chronologically. <laughs> it's kind of, I'm having a mini mind blown moment like that. People might approach it differently, but yeah, I, I always, no matter what the issue is, I go step by step, page one, page two, page three, always in mm -hmm. order. I, it's interesting because for me, I actually work pretty similarly to you. I start mm -hmm. from the beginning, go to the end, but for me, this causes some problems in that the changes I make at the beginnings have a ripple effect well, and the changes get bigger and bigger and bigger by the end. Yeah. I will never forget when I was revising Shades of Earth, which is the last in the Across the Universe trilogy. I was on tour in Texas. My laptop was crapping out every other second because right. it was overheating and it was a bad laptop anyway. But I got, I had gotten my edit letter, and she wanted me to rewrite who the villain was. Really? Yes. <laughs> and she thought that this would take me an afternoon. Oh my gosh. And I rewrote the entire novel. Oh my gosh. And I came back to her and I was, and I was like, okay, okay, I haven't slept for two weeks. Here it is. And she's like, I thought what? Why did you rewrite so much? I'm like, don't you see? Right. You pull one thread, everything unravels. Yeah, it's it's definitely the, the butterfly effect or, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, for me it was, my edit letter was like, you know, we, she wanted me to cut a storyline out in the beginning because it didn't really go anywhere and she wanted to condense the beginning, you know, cut as many words as I possibly could. So I did that and that was fine and the middle was actually more or less untouched. But, like, all the little changes that I'd sort of made throughout the ed, throughout the whole revision, by the time I got to the last act, I realized all of it had to go. Oh, yeah. And that was 30,000 words. Yeah. So I threw it all out. Yeah. And I rewrote it. Yep. But for me, that's easier. And I know that isn't the same for a lot of people, yeah. especially those who write mm -hmm. on outline, um, you know. It, it's hard for them sometimes to even come up with the words in the first place. Whereas me, right. I can write 5,000 words and throw them all out, and then, but I can write another 3,000 right. and it's not such a huge deal for me. Yeah. I think you always end up having to put in the work in some way. Right. I have a friend who 
sits there and analyzes every word before she writes it. And it may take her an entire day to write a paragraph. Right. But by the time she finishes that novel, it is gold and she doesn't have to do anything more to it. I envy those people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, I can write five or 10,000 words a day. Not every day. Right. But if I need to, I can do it in a day. I can get my first draft done pretty quickly, mm-hmm. but it takes me so long to revise it that by the end, we're writing about the same schedule. We're, we get a book done in about the same amount of time. It's just a totally different process. Yeah, usually for edit letters that you get from your editor, there's sort of the big picture stuff that they usually want you to focus on. Pacing is obviously a huge one. Mm-hmm. And pacing goes hand in hand with storytelling, right? In, in my opinion. You know, there's, there's the craft of writing, which is a sentence level right. craft aspect of it. And then there's storytelling, which mm-hmm. is a little bit different. Um, so that's sort of the bigger picture stuff, and there's also character motivation, which feeds feeds into the greater umbrella of storytelling. And then there are sort of smaller things here and there, like tightening dialogue and stuff like that. So the pacing and character motivation go hand in hand. For me, p- character motivation is actually easier to fix than pacing. <laughs> I am the exact opposite. Really? Yeah. I think, do you like to write your characters more or your plot more? Characters, for sure. I'm a plot girl. Really? Yep. I, you and I need to talk because I'm bad at plot. I'm so bad. But, but see, I, I can do like the crazy intricate plot. I've got that. But when it comes to the characters, I'm like, just do what I tell you to do. <laughs> why would you do what I have? Like, uh, people are like, well, why did she do that? I'm like, because I need her to do that for the story. <laughs> I, I'm because I'm the person who, um, and I was talking about this. That are you a discovery writer or a create uh, a creation writer? Hmm. And I'm a discovery writer, so mm-hmm. when I write, things happen that I'm like, I didn't expect yeah. that to happen. If you're a creation writer, you're sort of like, I need this to happen, so I need to move you into place yeah, I think to I'm make sure this happen. In the, in the middle there. Yeah? Because I'm, I don't really know the plot until I discover it, and I often say that, like, I call my first draft my discovery draft, where right. I discover what the story is. Right. But at the same time, like, I do have a few of those key things, like... I always picture it the way I kill off characters, <laughs> because I do love to kill my characters. You do. And I, I remember when I was on tour with Andrea Kramer, um, the, uh, the audience asked the question, like, do you feel bad when you kill your characters? And she told this beautiful story about how she had to kill a character, and it was very emotional. She cried. She had to process it. It was, like, it was almost like going through the stages of grief uh-huh. with killing this character. And then they look at me, and I'm like, I laughed a lot and slaughtered him in the worst possible way. It was fantastic. I made his eyeballs pop out and it was fun. Um, but like, I, I do not feel grief for my characters, really. But when I, when I kill them off, I think about how I will best make my reader cry. Mm. And like, so in that way, I'm sort of creating the scene because I'm, I will create a situation which is horrible and brutal and bloody, and then like I sort of giggle at it. So, so I'm discovering the plot, but I'm also creating some of those things, and I very purposefully have written things with this idea in mind of like, how can I make this worse? Okay, let's make it worse. You're so cruel, Beth. You it's really so are. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's the highlight of my day. So then when you look at revision um, and you say you do plot better, not better, we'll say it's easier. (laughs) It's easier for you to do plot versus character motivation. So for me, I'm what I call an inside-out writer. Everything comes from the character motivation, which Mm -hmm. is why I have such problems with plot because I'm like, but the character feels this and therefore (laughs) this has to follow. And then I have this sort of long rambling string of 
plot happenings yeah. that I need to, to tighten up, which for me is a lot harder. But if you, I, I would say maybe more of an outside-in person where you look at what needs to happen right. and trying to grow that from the inside and out. Right, yeah. So, but let's, let's, let's talk about then your personal process when you get revision letters. Mm-hmm. Do you want to fix the plot first or the character motivation first? I don't really think of it in terms of that. Yeah. I just sort of, um, when I revise my first round of revision, I use Scrivener and yes. I use the split screen function. Yes. So I put the old drafts on top and the new draft on bottom. And I have a list, and, and I literally just make a list of my notes. And what I tend to do is I make two columns on my paper, and on the first column, I just list everything that's happened in the story, like, one by one. Like, not even, like, by chapter, but, like, first she woke up, and then she went to school, and then mm-hmm. she met the cute guy. And I just go down the list that way. And then beside that, on the other side of the paper, I write down where the notes should go. So okay. I'll, like, highlight... The editor said that this part was really slow. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm doing my revision on Scrivener, I'll re- I will refer back to those notes, and that's where I will start incorporating them in sort of holistically. Wow. For me, it's <laughs> because I hate revising, and I do hate revising. Mm-hmm. I really do. I always have I like to... the product, but I hate the work. It's not even that I hate the work. I feel like my brain is just... Like, I don't know how to wrap my right mind around fixing, and I'm much better at just starting from scratch. Uh-huh, yeah. So I have to find ways to trick myself in, into believing I'm writing something new. And that literally comes down to this. So the split screen function for me is I just type, retype my words. I started I doing that, that, and then my fingers hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I will copy and paste, like, significant chunks. But I do retype a lot. But I, I look at it more of almost like a puzzle like I break the old draft and then I fit the pieces that still work into a new into a new draft yeah Yeah. you know for me I'm just like I literally fool myself this is a new book this is a new I mean even if I am basically reusing enormous chunks you rewrite everything I rewrite every word because I I can't have you ever deleted your whole draft uh no I was talking to Sean Hutchinson and he does that for every draft he finishes the book Hits delete. It is gone forever. He never looks at it again. He oh my gosh! It. I know. It's crazy pants, but I know several authors do that. I think Cynthia Lytek Smith does that. Like, oh my gosh! There are authors who do this, and I'm like, how? Oh my gosh! I don't yeah. think I could do that. No, I mean, I taste vile every time I think about it. I mean, I even if I don't use words that I've cut, yeah. I I just have a file I call orphans that I. Oh. It's just words or yeah. drafts even. To be fair, the, the one of my trunk novels that I might go back to, I think the only way I could save it is if I did not look at it and I just rewrote because I still have, like, you know, the main premise right, and the right. main idea of it. I think if I never looked at it again, and it's been years since I've looked at it, right. and this is the thing that makes me think I could rewrite it, is if I would just start completely over with that premise. So even though it sounds like total crazy pants, I think for that book, that would be the only way I could salvage it. That's the book I'm writing now. It's actually... So the book I'm writing now is... Um, Actually, my first real attempt at a book mm-hmm. from my early twenties. Like in college, I wrote like a thinly veiled autobiography that was supposed to be like the next great American novel. Yeah. I think everyone either starts with an autobiography or fan fiction. I did write a lot of fan fiction, <laughs> but this, like in, in college, you know, I was pretentious, so I was like, I'm going to write the next great American novel. Um, and then, but the real, but in my early twenties, I 
made a real concerted effort to write what I basically what I wanted to read because mm-hmm. I don't actually want to read the next great American right. novel. Same here. It just I'm not a real literary reader. J.K. Rowling was the one who gave me that sort of realization, right? Because right. I was writing in college as well, and I was reading all the Shake, all the dead white guys, mm-hmm. Shakespeare mm-hmm. and Melville, all those, those. And then I read like J.K. Rowling for fun, right? And I was like, wait a minute, it's also kind of good, but not sucky. And it was interesting. <laughs> like, it made me realize that you could write something that was good. That was good and, and entertaining. And entertaining at yeah. the same time, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I was an English literature major in college. Yep, but all the stuff I read outside class was all children's fiction. All mm-hmm. the all the books that I loved when I was a child. So, like, Lloyd Alexander or mm-hmm. Philip Pullman. And so after I'd left college and sort of left my pretentious... Well, I never really left those pretentious <laughs> years behind. But, you know, a little bit more distance yes. from those pretentious <laughs> years. My real attempt was to write a, a children's book, the mm-hmm. sort of children's book that I would have loved to read and that I still loved to read because I, you know, read YA and middle grade at the time. That book, I went through about four four drafts, mm-hmm. and I knew it wasn't working. So in between putting that one aside, I wrote two other novels, and then a, my third, the third one I wrote is the one that's becoming my debut. Mm-hmm. So now I've gone back to that book from the very start. And the only thing that remains the same, really, are two of my characters, and then I literally scrapped everything else and started writing it from scratch. And, but it is hard, you know, you have baggage. You have baggage from all your previous drafts that trying to get rid of it is is really, really, really difficult. That's why the first thing I ever do is delete the compliments. Like, I love yeah. the, I love the compliments, and they do make me not want to shoot myself in the face. Yeah. But I have to delete them because I will hold on to those. And it, it'll make me go, oh, no, I, I couldn't possibly delete this chapter. My critique partner from five years ago said she really liked that chapter. And, like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a healthy attitude to, to hold on to. It's good to have for the moment so that you're yeah. not depressed, which we all get depressed about. Yes, yes. But I have to let go of the compliments because... I hold on too deep. Yeah. So, are you systematic about your revisions, or are you just sort of like, I'm going to work on on this thing? Because I know you work from start to finish, because I do too. Yeah. Um, and I am pretty systematic about my revisions. I, oh, I have a schedule. Like, I'm going to do chapters one through three today, and then, um, you know, and I actually, my revision process tends to be kind of similar to yours. I, I highlight... Mm-hmm the big problems in the manuscript right. and sort of figure out. And then I actually drop a schedule and I also journal by wow. hand. Whew. That's me, a lot of words. It is. A, I mean, I'm very, very wordy. <laughs> I'm very wordy in, in speech as well as writing. So that's fine. You know what? I have noticed that I have a limited number of words that I have in my day. Right. So like if I have, like for today, we're doing this interview and I knew I was going to be talking. I couldn't write today. So I'm the like, same with those. I had this many <laughs> amount of words, and like these words are going to be expended into this microphone, and it will not go onto the paper. Like right. So, so like I couldn't imagine journaling during that time because that would be like some of the words that I would have to use. I get to the point when I'm deep, deep, deep in revisions. I'll just look at my husband and be like, "I'm not talking to you today," <laughs> and he's like, "Okay," because he, he knows this is how I work. Like, to you. <laughs> like I will have whole conversations with him that are mostly just grunts, and then I'm like, "Okay, focus." Like. I, I don't even speak. If my mother calls me, I'm like, nope, and hang up. Like, I, I can't even talk. The journaling for me is mostly just a chronicle of... It's sort of similar to, you know, your... Like a log? Well, yeah, it's more like a log than uh, actual journaling mm-hmm. about it. 
Because, you know, I, I actually look at my manuscript and I break it up by chapters because for me that's the easiest. That's I and I, um, and within each chapter I usually have scenes, but that's because I write in Scrivener as right, well. Right, And you've got those little note cards that say... So for me, I, I do draw up a schedule. I say I'm going to do chapters one through three today. Um, and I sort of... as as af It's after I've revised, then I kind of log it in my journal by hand. I say, this is what I did today and I think it's going well. Basically, it's just kind of a right. stream of consciousness log. But I, other than that, I am very systematic. But that, as as I had said before, because the changes get bigger and bigger and bigger at the end <laughs> of the book, the journaling is me then kind of sitting sitting down and then talking to myself. Refocusing? Yeah, and, and talking out the problems. Like, I know this needs to happen, but I'm here in my manuscript, but I need to get here, so mm -hmm. how am I going to get from here to here in right. my revision plan? Right. But I do. I do break it up by chapter, and I try to do X amount of chapters per day. Usually in the beginning, because I generally have less to revise in the beginning mm -hmm. than I do in the end. Usually my beginning revisions are just tighten the pacing so it's like taking out words or whatever. Right. So I can do like maybe five chapters a day in the beginning of my manuscript, but like towards the end of it, it's like one chapter a day because I have to fix so much like the plot and the motivation and right. this and this and that. So I'm pretty systematic sure. in that way. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm systematic in my approach. Like I, I do make the list mm -hmm. and I, at some whenever I write the draft, I very rarely use paper. I, I write the draft on the computer and it's, it's almost entirely contained within the screen. If I got stuck, I'll like doodle on paper and figure it out. But when I revise, in some way I have paper. I've either made a list or I've printed the manuscript, or in some way I have the paper. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, like either making a list or a chart or something like that, I'm not really systematic in terms of schedule. I, I, I think it feels like homework then. <laughs> <laughs> well, writing so, is work, definitely. It is work, but I, I sort of have to trick myself into, into reminding myself that I want to do it. And also, I work in, in really big bursts. Mm. And I think this comes from first, when I wrote my first novels, I was a student, and then I was a teacher. And so I had like limited time. When I was writing as a teacher, a lot of my writing got done on the weekend, it got done during summer break. So I would write in huge chunks and revise in huge chunks and then take a week off. Right. So I tend to, instead of having like a daily schedule or even like a chapter by chapter, in my own personal life, I'll just look at my husband and be like, okay, I'm on deadline this week. And he knows we can't schedule anything. I'm mm -hmm. probably not going to take a shower. Yeah. Don't make any comments about the hygiene. <laughs> no dishes are getting done. Go ahead. No cooking. Get, get pizza. That's it. Like yeah. pizza and like whatever else you can, Chinese food, whatever you can order to go. Because I'm just going to be sitting there and not moving and working on the manuscript for like 12 hours. And then pass out. And then wake up and do it again. And then pass out. And then not do anything for like a week. Mm -hmm. And then repeat that. So I, I do huge chunks that are not good for my health. <laughs> right. <laughs> it probably would be a lot better if the, I wasn't this way. I mean, for me, nutrition definitely goes out the window because I oh think I gosh. got through revisions basically only on iced coffee and, and strawberry Twizzlers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> there was one moment where our coffee maker broke and I just like, I was ready to burn the house down. I, I, I like, would have. I would yeah. have burned the house down. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. My husband was just like, okay, I'm on this. And he like rushed to the store and got another Keurig because there was no, there was absolutely no way. I was like peeling the little containers of the Keurig. I'm like, can I just eat it whole? <laughs> the answer to that is no. But... <laughs> So my, my last question on revision uh -huh. is not actually about the process. It's it's 
more of an internal thing, or at least it is for me. It's how you divorce the work yes. from you. Oh, that's such a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when you get... I know a lot of people, especially a lot of beginning writers, myself included, you know, when I was first starting to write, you get criticism and feedback, and you get defensive. Like, yep. Yep. this is my book, this is my vision. Your knee-jerk reaction. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and how you untangle who you are as a person and as an artist right. from the work itself. That's one. I, I definitely struggle with that. Um, and I think it's important for people who aren't published to know that you as an artist do have the ultimate choice yes. in what you do. You just have to be aware that what you choose is going to affect your end product. So for example, um, I'm working on the revisions of A World Without You right now, which is why it's so heavy in my mind. Um, and there was a it seems so silly now that I think of it, but we had this argument about what to name the academy. Like the, mm. the children are all at this school, and I was originally just calling it the academy, mm -hmm. and then I had given it like a longer name, but the kids just shortened it to to the academy, the academy and that's right. what they called it. And my editor, my publisher, and my agent, nobody liked that. They're like, no, it needs to have a real name. Right. I was like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't need to have this real name. And ultimately, it just became such a moot point. And and my agent made the comment like, well. It would have a name, and kids would shorten that name, but would they shorten it to the academy? Right. So I had to, I, I thought about what would be realistic for teenagers. And the same sort of thing happened at the end of the book. The end of this book is um, there's an epilogue, mm -hmm. and that epilogue was not a part of the original draft. Right. And originally I ended it on a very ambiguous note where the scene sort of ends and you have to figure out does the character live, does the character die, is it, is it happy, is it not, and right. you sort of decide yourself. And I love that ambiguous end. And my editor and my agent had to sort of tell me, like, you can do this ambiguous end, but at the same time you need to remember that you are going to distance yourself from some readers. Right. And I had to sort of weigh what was more valuable to me, to keep this ambiguous end or to write a novel that would reach more readers. Right. And I made, and I had to make the choice based on that. So, when you're when you're dealing with those sort of big issue questions, you do get to decide what you want to keep, but you have to decide what's more valuable: your original vision, or the audience you're reaching, or where the book will be shelved, or how it can be marketed. Right. I feel like I've deviated from the question because I can't even remember no. the original question. Well, now. it's just <laughs> untangling yourself from the work. Right. Yo. Yeah. 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 And it, and it's sort of deciding where you want the work to be placed ultimately right um but you even when you make any sort of edit like there's a reason why they call it killing your darlings right right because you get so attached to the words um i try to approach revisions kind of like a puzzle or something that i'm trying to sort of piece together like I, I've made a work of pottery, but now I have to smash it and turn it into a mosaic almost. Right, right. So I, I try to, to, to sort of peel back the heart of it, and I always want to keep in mind what the heart of the novel is. Right. And I'll, I will change everything as long as it doesn't affect the heart. Right. So whenever I get to those, those moments where I'm like, I really don't want to change this. I just have to ask myself, like, is it changing the heart? No. Okay, so that means I can change it. Right. Will this change get me closer to my overall goal of reaching readers? Right. And then I make that decision. Yeah, for for me, I, I work in other art forms as well. And specifically in high school, I was a painter in the visual arts conservatory. And I've, and I've brought this metaphor up on previous podcasts before as well. 
where you have a vision as an artist. Um, you sketch it out, you make cartoons and thumbnails, and you know you've got the work. But you know, fixing a composition or fixing a color scheme or fixing, you know, these are big changes you make to a work. It doesn't mm -hmm. actually fix your overall or change your overall vision. That, that word though, fix. I think that's an important one to, yeah. to bring up because it's not always about fixing. And when you come to right. edit, you have to ask yourself. Is this making it better or is it making it different? Right. Because if it's making it better, it's worth it to do no matter what. If it's just making it look different, right. then you need to ask yourself if this is a change that you really should make and where is that suggestion of the change coming from. Right. Yeah. It, divorcing yourself from your work, you know, and this is the other thing where I don't actually have any experience in this, <laughs> um, but... I've, I've mentioned, you know, a lot of people sort of glibly make the comparison that a book is like a baby, which is not. But no, it's not, not even. Not even. No, it doesn't scream or poop. It's, it's not. <laughs> I have an eight-month-old at home, and I'm still kind of adjusting to that. I'm like, no, <laughs> books are much easier to deal with. <laughs> but the one way I'd say it is similar is that your child is part of you, yeah. but is its own person. Mm -hmm. So your book is a part of you, and it mm -hmm. came from you, but it is its own thing. And yeah. the way the world looks at it, or the way readers will approach it, or what they take away from it, is going to be their own thing, and you don't have control oh, over that. absolutely. I feel very strongly that whatever, that's, and that is another way to look at revisions, honestly, is you think about how, like, for example, if I were to read King Lear and you were to read King Lear, mm -hmm. I could read King Lear and get this beautiful sense of family and how important family is. And maybe you read it and you realize that what it's really saying is that adults are wrong and family isn't the solution to everything. You right. can take two different things from that. Shakespeare is dead. He cannot control <laughs> the way we interpret that. But even if he weren't dead, he could not control the way we interpret it. So I, I tend to look at revisions as my last chance to make any sort of influencing effort for the reader to get the story I want them to get. Right. It's my last chance to really nail home what that heart of that story is. Mm -hmm. And after that, I have to let it go. And maybe I succeeded and you're going to get the, I don't want to say message because I don't write with a message, but right. you're going to get like the heart of that story that I wrote in. Maybe mm -hmm. you'll get that and maybe you won't. But revision is my last chance to make it get to that point. Right. Refining your vision right. as best you can before and you put it, it to someone else's yeah. hands. Yeah. So... I think that wraps up our revision discussion. Okay. Thank you very much for all of your insight because it's great. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> so the next section we usually do on our podcast is just to talk a bit about what we're working on, mm -hmm. which we did mention a little right. earlier, but if you want to go mm -hmm. a little further into what creative projects you're working yeah. on right now. Um, well, I am completing my proofreading. This is the final, final stage of edits for A World Without You, mm -hmm. which is my first contemporary novel, <laughs> um, which is scary because I used to say I would never write a contemporary novel, but it's a contemporary novel in which there are superpowers and things still blow up, so I'm yeah, okay right. with that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's not a gentle walk in Paris with some kisses. That's not the kind of story Right, right, right. No. Um, if, if people don't die or get maimed in Beth's books, then... Right. Something is wrong. <laughs> Something's wrong. Um, uh, and when you read it, when you read that book and you see the epilogue, you're going to realize, like, why my editor was like, no, I think you need an epilogue. <laughs> um, so I think you're going you're gonna to appreciate that one later. Um, so I'm working on that one and finishing it up, and it comes out in July. July mm -hmm. of next year, and then after that, I am, um, or not after that, I'm still currently working on the third Paper Hearts book, um, awesome. 
There are three volumes of the Paper Heart series, and the first one is Writing Advice. It's already out. The second one is Publishing Advice, which takes you from query to either self-publication or traditional publication. It covers both. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one is coming out in January, and it is Marketing Advice. So it's, it's more of a beginning how to what to put on your website how to do social media right how to get your foot in the door in that so I'm finishing that one up um, I was very smart and decided to work on that during the holiday season so <laughs> that's been a fun thing to sort of fit into the schedule so those are my two big projects going out the door right now I highly recommend Beth's paper heart series you guys Thank I mean you. I mean I don't know if you guys you are moderator for the YA writers at reddit uh -huh. she's got amazing advice there and I know you had put up some uh, stuff for Paper Hearts on Wattpad. Yeah, it started off as a Wattpad book. Right. Um, well, it, I started off as blog posts and Reddit right, posts, right. and then I, I compiled it to Wattpad, and then enough people wanted me to put it as an actual book. Yeah. So. Beth has really yeah. wonderful down-to-earth advice. It's not like me where I just ramble all over the place. <laughs> Beth is a bit more concise than I am. Um, but I highly recommend these Paper Hearts books, and I'll put the links in the show notes for you guys to either buy them or get the uh, pre-orders. So that's what you're working on, uh -huh. what I'm working on. Um, I am supposed to see my cover concepts before the holidays for oh, my that's book. exciting. I know. I am really excited. Oh, wow. Um, which is a little bit weird for me, simply because I am a visual artist as well. So right. kind of, I, I, this might be harder than actually revising my words. <laughs> did they ask you for any extra input considering your background? They did. The, my editor asked me what, you know, if I had any ideas and what sort of covers I liked. So I kind of compiled yeah. a, a sort of a mosaic of covers that I liked and sort of gave her a specific ideas what I would like the cover to be. Of course, this is me as an artist and it's not me as a marketer to look at a, a cover as, as a marketing tool because that's right. essentially what covers are. Yeah, you really have to divorce yourself right. from the concept of that and just think of marketing. But it might be harder for me to do that than oh to like gosh, divorce yes. myself from my, <laughs> my words. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's what we're, I'm waiting on for from my editor. She said before the holidays. Right now we're recording before the end of the year. Um, so before holidays, keeping my fingers crossed to see them shortly, and I won't cry. And <laughs> I, I hope they're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited, and I'm trying. I'm still working on my middle grade. Um, and I'd mentioned before that I'd sent sort of the first. Uh, 100 pages and a synopsis to my agent and so I'm, the other thing I'm waiting for is for her to come back and tell me what she thinks of them whether or not whether or not I'm nuts <laughs> <laughs> I always I'm just waiting for the time when my agent emails and it's just like what the hell are you thinking <laughs> like, I, don't, I, I mean, know. because I'm not very good at writing to the market, and I don't mm -hmm. mean like trends, because nobody wants to, to you know, right. you, you shouldn't ever write to a trend or anything like that. But when I, for when I was querying Winter Song, which is my debut, I queried that as a YA novel, mm -hmm. but it is not a YA novel. It's actually being published as an adult novel mm -hmm. with crossover appeal. That's right. You know, yeah. But, and so then this book, which for a long time I just called a children's novel, I didn't think of it as either middle grade or young adult, partially because I think when you and I were growing up, YA wasn't a thing. It was very fluid, yeah. Yeah, and um, so in my mind, this was the sort of book that maybe would have been published in like the early 90s. <laughs> so that was kind of what I was writing towards. Uh -huh. um, and. And I have no idea what my agent will think when, when she looks at that. So I'm just sort of waiting for her feedback on the viability, I guess, oh, the viability yeah. of my manuscript. Um, but, I mean, I, I still love those books and I, or those characters that I was writing with. Yeah. So that, that's 
that's basically what I'm right, working on now. So, well, then uh, our other segments are what are we reading? Um, well, I most recently finished Neil Schusterman's Challenger Deep. Oh, I heard such good things about that. I, I wanted to finish it before the National Book Awards were announced. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel really special that I finished like two days before they were announced. I was like, yeah, I got in on the deadline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is a totally arbitrary deadline, but, right. but it was really fascinating. Um, I feel like it was a book that I needed to read because The World Without You also deals with mental issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, like, Neil Schusterman wrote it about his son and mine was more about my brother, but it was still a fascinating look into it. And his was schizophrenia and mine's delusions, which is slightly difficult. Right. Not slightly, but it's very different. Right, but right. But still dealt with that. Um, and I just thought it was fascinating the way he brought in the art and the illustrations. And his son drew pictures. Aww. And then he, Neil wrote this story in part mm-hmm. around the pictures. And it was a beautiful insight into how you can create a narrative out of this disease that breaks people and he made something whole out of it so Aww. I really yeah it was it was really it was an amazing look there was there's one scene in particular that is this is not a spoiler but there's a <laughs> scene where the main character sort of blends what's real and what's not mm-hmm. and it, the chapter starts with him being firmly in reality and it ends with him it, it was almost like the end of the Mockingjay books of, is this real or not real? Right, and right. I was just like, oh, knife to the heart. It is very beautifully written. And it was a very subtle, that chapter in particular was such a subtle shift mm-hmm. into it. It was, it was amazing. So that's the one I most recently finished. <laughs> yeah, I just last night finished um, More Happy Than Not by Adam Silvera. Yeah, that was fantastic. It broke me in a really, really, really good way. He's a genius. He, and he's so young. I kind of hate I him. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story. I recently emailed him about More Happy Than Not, and he was like, oh, yeah, we totally met. And I was like, what? He used to work at Books of Wonder. Yeah. And he would, like, I had met him at Books of Wonder, and I was like, oh, I really hope I wasn't a dick. But fortunately, I don't think I was. <laughs> so the funny thing about Adam, um, so he, you know, he was a contributor for Publishing Crawl, and, you know, um, mm-hmm. but even before that, my first year in publishing, he was a bookseller at the 86th Street Barnes & Noble in New York. Wow. And we met there. Uh-huh. And we had a very long conversation about breaking into the publishing business. Um, and, and then years later, when he was rep- represented, it, represented, and um, I think he had just sold his book, maybe, um, and we had met up again. And he's like, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> if we, but we met before. And I was like, oh, I remember you. Yeah. I do remember you. Because, I mean, even then, he was really young. I think he yeah. was maybe 18 or 19, but he's so smart and yeah. so on top of things. And I just wish all the best for him. But that was the one I most recently finished. Mm-hmm. Um, I am currently at 95 books read this year, and I'm trying to hit 100. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I am currently reading Silver in the Blood by Jessica Day George. I've heard such good things about that one. I'm really enjoying that one. I love the title. Oh, yeah, yeah it's a yeah. great title. And I'm also, these I've been reading for a while because they're kind of bricks and <laughs> slightly slower, uh, was The Witches uh, by Stacey Schiff, I think. It's a nonfiction book about the Salem Witch Trials mm-hmm. and The Lions of Al Rasan by Guy Gabriel Kay. It's a it's it's fantasy even though there's not like a lot of magic or anything right. in it. It's sort of like almost alternate history of 
Moorish Spain at the Ooh, during the time fantastic. of El Cid. It's also like a thousand pages long though, so <laughs> really, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's an but adult, it's yeah, yeah, it's adult fantasy novel, so it moves more slowly than the kind of the YA that I right. typically am used to reading. So those are the books I'm reading now. Yeah, I, I have um, Red Queen, an audiobook. Oh that, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I have the hardcover as well, but the audiobook narrator is so engaging. Really? She's she's a really good one. Like I, I highly I recommend look that it up. one. Um, th- it was perfect for this day as I was driving right. here. <laughs> so I have that one going in audiobook. And then I, if you want to really hit your 100 book goal, uh-huh. I highly recommend some picture books. Awesome. <laughs> they, they take five minutes to read. <laughs> um, I've been reading over and over again the, the hat books by John Classen. Yes. Um, who Stole My Hat and Where, and Where Is My Hat. Where Is My Hat, yeah. They I just love the illustrations. Fantastic. They're so cute. <laughs> I mean, they're very cute, but they imply murder, which obviously I'm a fan of. So I'm breaking my son into it really, really early. I'm right, like, you right. know, don't steal a hat from a bear. He will eat you. <laughs> I mean, spoiler alert. <laughs> so I've been reading those pretty heavily. Awesome, awesome. I just love those illustrations. They're so, so fantastic. It's the so eyes. Cute. Yes, it's the eyes. It's, it's totally the eyes, yeah. I've actually, my parents always asked me when I was young if I was going to write a picture book because I, you know, I draw. And, you know, though, I think picture books are the hardest things to write. Oh, I can totally see that, yeah. It's just they're yeah. so difficult, you know, that you have to have the text and the illustrations, yeah. and they have to work in, in tandem with each other, mm-hmm. and you want to have rhythm, and, and it just, I feel like it's such a short form, and everyone thinks that they can write a picture book. Right, right. But I honestly think it's the hardest thing to get right. I Just judging from the number of picture books that we have on the shelf that we're not reading anymore. Right. Like, we just go to the same few ones. And, like, there's a reason why Where the Wild Things Are is such right, a classic. Right, like, right. We literally pull that book off the shelf and my eight-month-old son just kind of giggles and kicks his feet and he's so happy with that one. And then there's some that we pull out and he's just like, meh. Right. Like, and it's just, it's amazing how in, how different these books are and how some are just so wonderful. Right. Yeah. So, and our, our last segment is Off Menu Recommendations. Um, which is just anything we've been enjoying that isn't books. You know, it could be TV shows that you've seen or... Um... Ooh, I have been watching Jessica Jones a lot. Oh, have you? Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's I... fantastic. We're two episodes from the end. Okay, because I started it. It's a little... It's Subject matter is really, right. really, really tough. Even though yeah. David Tennant's in it. But then he's a villain, too, so I'm like, I don't know if I want to watch that. You know, the <laughs> creepiest thing of this all has not been anything to do with the show... But I posted on Twitter something about how, like, David Tennant's a great actor because he's so freaking creepy. Yeah. And some people replied back that they were kind of shipping him. And, like... And Jessica? Yeah. Like, oh, but it's so romantic. I'm like... No, it's not. No, there is no... No. I mean, it's brilliant casting him because oh, he's, yeah. one, handsome and charming and... Yeah. And a very good actor on top of that. Right. Because... But it, uh, no, uh, no, yeah, no. That's been the, the most disturbing thing has been some people's reaction to it. Like, if you find yourself shipping this and thinking that what he's doing is romantic, you you need help get out of whatever situation you're in because uh, it's not good. Uh, no, yeah. I I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah. yeah, that's the one that we've been watching most. And we're, I plan to start Daredevil after that. I watched Daredevil, and again, it's so dark. I mean, it's good. Uh-huh. It's, it's good. And, but it's so dark and gritty, and sometimes I just want a little bit more levity yeah. in my television. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we are at the point now where we're only watching, like, one or two shows, and so we, we have to pace ourselves. That's why we're only on, like, episode 10 right now, because we have to sort of pace 
case that one. Yeah, my partner and I had had for a while been like one by one going through episodes of BoJack Horseman. That one. It's a Netflix original. It's a cartoon um, in in the sort of this world where like animals are kind of anthropomorphized, and but they coexist with humans. Oh, and this, the main character is BoJack Horseman, who's a horse, and he used to be the star of a '90s sitcom called Horsin' Around, and now mm-hmm. obviously it's like 15, 20 years later, and he's sort of washed up. <laughs> so it's like it's kind of like this insight into to Hollywood, and um, and it's voiced by he is voiced by. Will Arnett. Oh, that's going to be fantastic. Yeah, no, the voice cast is fantastic. It's, it's funny. It's yeah. kind of dark. Um, oh, well, I really like um, We Bear Bears. I haven't seen that. Okay, it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> it's on Cartoon Network. It's one of those 15-minute shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's sort of like that in that there's three bears, and they live in the human world, and everyone's just sort of like, okay, there's bears here, and they're in the human world. And, right. And they talk and everything. Um, but they're just, they're, they're pretty hilarious. Um, they each have a good personality, and they're kind of clueless, and they bumble through. <laughs> but I, li- I like that one, and I love Adventure Time. Yes. Adventure yes. Time is a great break, and unless they're dealing with the Ice King and Marcy, and then I just have to cry for 10 years. Yeah. No, they're good. I mean, I love cartoons, though. Oh, me too. I'm, I, a, I'm a hardcore cartoon fan. Me yeah. too. I sometimes like them a lot better than live-action TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff you can do with animation that yeah. you can't do. And there's a really cool, like throwback to old school style right now. Yeah. Like between Steven Universe right, and right. We Bear Bears. Like they're they they're going back to those softer lines and that sort of focusing more on the story than the art. Not not in a way that they're dismissing the art, but Right. They're not worried so much about the graphic effects and Yeah, and yeah. it's stylized and yeah. you know, cartoony in in, yeah. in the sort of old sort yeah. of it's term. Going back to the <laughs> I think partially that's just because the people who are now making cartoons like these yeah. probably grew up in the same era of television that we did. Yeah, probably. So, we're old, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did bring up a 56K modem today, so, so that's definitely saying something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled podcast episodes. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like the show, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. And you can follow me, Beth, at Beth Revis on Twitter, Tumblr, and author Beth Revis on Facebook. Awesome. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye, everyone.